Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. This is how the show starts every week. This is what I do. I ask my guest who they are. So who are you? Hello, I'm Jen Fricker and I am extremely <laughs> nervous all of a sudden. I we mean, were, that was we were weird. We were having, having a, a normal conversation oh off the air. And then I choked. I'm Jen. I'm Fricker. Because <laughs> like, in that moment, I was like, uh-huh. who am I? <laughs> Yeah. Who am I, man? It's a sim it's a seemingly innocent question. And I do ask it with an it can be taken as innocently as people want. But of course, it is the big question at the heart of the entire conversation we're having, which is who are you? You know, how do you define yourself? When somebody asks you who you are, what do you say when you answer that question? It's I I find it the most I find it the only question really. Like I mean, essentially for the next you know five and a half hours, we'll be <laughs> I'll be asking you that same question in different forms. Yeah. So so I'm going to ask it to you again. Uh, let's assume Jen Fricker's already on the table. Yeah, We've yeah, got yeah. that out. Yeah. Jen Fricker, who are you? Um, I like oh man. <laughs> Wow, I'm really choking already. I'm just, I'm very intimidated. It's good. I like um, an early choke. Yeah, I like yeah, a, yeah. Uh, let's talk through this. Why are we intimidated? What's uh, intimidating you about? Because you know me. You're yes. certainly not intimidated by talking to me. We work together I at know. the moment. So you can't be intimidated by that process. You've yeah. seen me in my tracksuit pants. You understand yeah. the real me. That's the most um, intimate you can get with someone, by the way, <laughs> is seeing them in their tracksuit pants. That's like a real, I never wore tracksuit pants until the pandemic. And now I'm I'm like, I can't do it. And you're just there being real every day. And it's brave Mate, of you. It's really brave I, of you, Will. I have been dressed for the pandemic for 20 years. <laughs> I, that was the one thing you I was definitely prepared for. You were there trying to start it. For. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were it's slowing like, down the vaccine. You were like, nah. Let it go. Working from home and spending the day working in the clothes you went to bed in the night before has been my norm for about 20 years. That was the one thing that everybody else is like, oh, you don't have to wear like a suit and tie to work. I was like, yeah, yeah duh. <laughs> I've got to say, like, because I'm, you know, working a bit on Gruen at the moment, it is funny to see you before we shoot and you are in the suit. And it is like, <laughs> I don't know, it is like funny because I guess before I worked on Gruen, like I've only seen you in club settings or whatever and like you don't wear suits on stage. As far as I've seen you, like I'd never seen you wear a suit before and then all of a sudden it's like, I don't know, it's like a dog walking on its hind legs. Like it's just like, wow, okay. <laughs> I mean I, that with respect, so please don't nah. fire me. <laughs> uh, here's what I would say is mm. you're right though. I find it the most hilarious lie of all, like, is the idea that people think that's the show where like 98% of the show is made by people walking around in their pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And just eating lollies. Like we're just, just yeah, <laughs> eating lollies and mucking about <laughs> and trying to work shit out. And then for like an hour, we all slap on makeup and put on our best clothes yeah, and pretend yeah, yeah. that's what we're like all the time. That's so funny. Oh my God. <laughs> Have you noticed how deftly I avoided answering your question? As well. No, no, this is padding. This is yeah, just yeah, time yeah. For, for, for us to get to the, the – so intimidation, like well, that's what you said. You said you're intimidated by it and we've ruled out the fact that you're intimidated by me. So what yeah. is it about that question that intimidates you then? I think it's just like in – I feel like I am constantly in flux. 
Does that make sense? I don't know. I feel like when I was younger, I was so certain of who I am, which is crazy because you have the least amount of life experience and you have the least amount of, I don't know, but now I'm like, I guess, I I mean, fundamentally, I guess I am a comedian, but then it's also like, I've heard other people talk to you about this, about how, what does that entail? It entails everything I write. I make, like, I'm working on a video game at the moment. I write with you on your TV show. Like, I uh, do stand-up and I've done radio in the past and things like that. So it is kind of this thing that it implies, comedian implies it's like a monolithic thing, but it's literally the most nebulous thing you can fucking be, I think, at this point. And then also I'm just, like, just at this point in my life, I'm also just like, what am I doing? (laughs) Yeah, okay. So that's it's all super fascinating. Firstly, I don't <laughs> think it is bananas at all that like when you're young is the only time that it is appropriate to have certainty about mm. things. Like you should grow out of that certainty. We, we shouldn't deny it in the young. It's great. You define yourself by what you love and what you hate. It's yeah. a good part of beca- like finding out what your identity is. But the older you get, the more you realise that life is not neither black nor white in almost every scenario. It is various shades of grey and the grey depends on who's looking at the thing in the first place. So what someone sees might not be what somebody else sees at all. It's complex. Of course, that's yeah. the, the only people who have certainty as adults. They're the ones you should be terrified about. So totally. the fact that you don't know is, I think, a smart answer. But you say at this stage of your life, what is – let's start there then. What is <laughs> This is a therapy session. It mostly is. It's a dress-up therapy session. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'm, not, I'm never sure if it's for you or for me. That's yeah. about <laughs> I mean, I would love to know if it gets any easier, but I feel like um, – I've been thinking a lot because I'm I'm in like the second decade of my career and I'm also kind of trying to work on this thing at the moment. Basically what happened was I got dumped a couple of years ago by a guy and he dumped me because he said he was focusing on his legacy. Mm. Like that's the reason is that he could, didn't have time for a relationship. And so like I'm kind of trying to write around that at the moment because I've never thought of legacy as like, like what am I contributing to the world? Because I think my world is so like, it's what I do with my friends and it's like the world around me. And like, obviously there's like an engagement with like the world generally, but in terms of like me as a person day to day, I'm like, fuck, I'm coming across so neurotic. I promise you I'm not. I promise We're you I'm very normal. This, Jen. Yeah. We don't need to worry. This is all perfectly fine. We're just okay. finding our feet. Everything's good. Okay. By the way, like it, it's all pretty much excused by the fact that apparently you dated somebody who's concentrating on their legacy. So, oh my um, God. I'm so just sorry one... that you and Kanye West <laughs> broke up. But... Oh my God. <laughs> this is the fucking crazy. Like I just, and it's, I wouldn't even say that's the, like the weirdest person I've dated either, but it's just like, the fact that it, I was like, I mean, look, when someone says that to you, when they break up with you, you're like, yeah, fair enough. Like, and in your mind, you're like, thank fucking God. Like, mm. <laughs> I'm glad that you brought this up now because I would hate to have fucking been any more deep in this with you. And then you've said yeah. this to me. I'm glad you're breaking up with me for this purpose, because if yeah. I knew this was your purpose, I'd have to break up with you. Totally. <laughs> exactly that. Exactly that. Oh my God. Yeah, it was nuts. And so I'm like, at the moment, I'm just trying to think about what that actually means. Um, in Because I just think it's a really funny thing to say to someone, obviously. But then I'm like, yeah, like, are we meant, are we all meant to be doing that? 
Are we all meant to be like striving towards a legacy? And then I don't know. I'm like really TikTok poisoned at the moment where I, I don't really, I'm not really on social media, like in a very um, proactive way, but I like TikTok's just got my number and I just scroll and scroll and scroll. And I watched this video of this woman who there's a graveyard in the States and all the women buried in it in a small town on their gravestones have their favorite recipes. And then this woman's gone around and made the recipes of all these women, these women's gravestones. And I'm like, that's kind of an interesting legacy, I guess, to leave. But then it's also like, is that what a life is? Is like, this is my best cookie recipe. I don't know. I'm existential at the moment, Will. You've caught me on a very existential day. That's good. I, I mean, that's what this podcast is about. Honestly, we've dived in the deep end. We've kind of got to the end before we've started. But that's okay. I don't mind that. That's mm. a non-linear progression through this, which is because normally I ease people into the whole, <laughs> what is the whole purpose of Who life? The fuck Why are, are we you? here? <laughs> yeah. You know, is there such a thing as a legacy? Do you care to be remembered? But it sounds like those are issues that you're dealing with in your current day life and in your current day existence, they're top of mind anyway. So we yeah. don't need to ease our way into it. We can just jump in and talk about that because that's the fun bit of life because do you believe – what do you think life is about? Like do you think – at least this guy's got an idea. Like I guess my my essential premise is that no one really knows and we're never totally. going to find out. So everyone comes up with their own theories about yeah. what it is and then some people just – like there is something, whether it be religion or whether it be some other doctrine to which you, you know, dedicate your life, it gives you some meaning. You find meaning through it. And the idea that this guy, whatever he means by, or this, uh, by legacy, then okay, I get that. That's like I want to contribute something. Like I want whatever that means to yeah. him. But Turns out it but, meant fucking his ex, but like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what people call a legacy fuck. I don't yeah, know yeah, if you yeah. know that. Yeah, that's, yeah. Get on Urban Dictionary. <laughs> You've got to really figure out what your impact is, specifically on someone else's genitals. <laughs> you know, you only play this pussy twice. Once on the way up. Once on the way back down. Yeah, real cool guy. Uh, <laughs> but let's like the the key part of that, the idea of what is the purpose of life. You know, that is what this show is about. But also, it feels like that's what you're thinking about. So at the moment, like, what what are you thinking about, and what what is giving life purpose, or what do you think yeah. the, your, the purpose of your life is? I don't. No, I mean, I envy people who have like clarity on their like mission here. You know what I mean? Because I think generally how I approach life is like, if it was an accident that we exist, if it was, or perhaps we're in a simulation. You know what I mean? Perhaps we don't exist and this is just like an after shock or the simulation replicating, whatever it is. Maybe Roko's Basilisk has happened and and computers are already enslaving us and we don't even know, right? It doesn't matter ultimately because <laughs> I'm still here conscious walking around mm. stuff. So like I don't think there's necessarily any purpose to life, but I feel like my interaction with it is to like – I don't know, find meaning and community with other people and connect to some kind of feeling of love and joy, perhaps? Okay, so what? What? where do you find love and joy? Like if we're trying to 
sniffle out love and joy like a truffle pig looking yeah. for love and joy. And that's truffles. how I do it as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I yeah, imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm on Jen my hands and knees. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in the pub. I'm <laughs> just, <laughs> just <laughs> down on my Sniffing yeah. and snorting around yeah, yeah, and seeing yeah. what's happening. And it's, I'm, I'm not finding anything. No, um, <laughs> I don't know. I guess like, f- like I think a lot about why I like doing comedy and making stuff and it's literally I think started because of the hang like I never I wasn't growing up and being like I'm a funny person I can't wait to get out there and be funny in front of people like I was a very serious child I was a bit intense which I don't know if you're getting that vibe off me Will but I'm actually (laughs) I was a bit intense (laughs) growing up as a kid and um where did you grow up? Where's the where did, where's the Jen Fricker story start? So like I grew up like around the northern beaches of Sydney. I was like a little surfy kid, surf skate oh, kid. Okay. Um and but I also was really into music. Um and as I got like grew up, I um got more and more into music and I ended up like becoming a classically trained double bassist. And I like toured Europe and stuff in orchestras. And how old are you when you're touring Europe, playing the double bass? Like sixteen. Like I would get time off wow. school to go and like um, played. Yeah, like we're playing a lot of orchestras in Australia, and like that was kind of my plan. Was that I would like go to uni and then audition for like Vienna Philharmonic, and then I would yes. be like in Europe All about that bass. In yeah, Europe. exactly. That's exactly it. Um, and then I had a nervous breakdown at 21 because it turns out that's not sustainable. Um, and then I... When you say you had a nervous breakdown, like a proper nervous breakdown or is this yeah. like a... Yeah. Yeah. Is it just because it is... I mean, it, it seems to be such a precise and practiced and intense skill to learn, as a, particularly as a child. Like, I mean, I played music like when I was a child but never like you know any higher than level of like a school orchestra you know did some you know lessons in like you know playing the keyboard and like did some levels of look but never that sort of intense you know you're going to be somebody who does this for a living in any way and even that even that even trying to master those instruments as a child is like the hours of practice to be as shit as I was (laughs) (laughs) what did you play uh, I, I like I play keyboard. I play flute. They were the two that I oh, yes. Bless. That's I know. so cute. I, I know. I was the only boy in the the flute class with six girls. Learned a lot about girls in the world in that class. Yeah, I will say that. of course. Less so about the flute, but yeah. more about girls. And but. then when did you stop playing flute? University. I went. I took my flute with me to university, and then yeah. about halfway through my first year of university, I took that flute. Yeah. To cash converters and got some money <laughs> to spend on beer or whatever. Yeah, I assume. yeah, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's like um, I grew up around like the environment of like elite classical music is just so intense. And from a very young age, you're kind of taught like all of your friends, all of them, they're your competition. Like you have to not only be better than them, you have to take from them. Like any all opportunities are taken from other people, and like. At the time, I was like, yeah, that's normal. Like, that's normal to think of that, like, you know. And so you just 
double bass is such a physical instrument as well. So I would just be, I would get to school at 6 a.m. I'd practice for two hours before school. I would like do my classes and I'd do 20 minutes at recess of practice and I'd like do the rest of my classes and I'd do half an hour practice at lunch. Then I'd do more classes. Then I'd do two hours of practice after school. Then I would go to orchestra and then I'd be home about eight or nine to do. And I'd do my um, homework on the train home. And like, that was just my life. And I was like so disciplined and so like, you know, I would get these like calluses on my hands and I would dip my hands in like methylated spirits to like harden up my, and it was just, but it was just like, it was in service of something greater than myself, you know, like it was in service of like, I have to be the best and I can never let down myself because I'm letting down everyone and like all these masters who have invested their time in me and, and yeah, so I don't think it's any surprise that I got to 21 and I was like, maybe this is deeply unhealthy way to live. Um... But yeah, it was like yeah, it'd be more of a surprise if you didn't. Yeah. To be honest. So um, and I worry I, for the people who didn't because yeah, I still right? know a lot of people from high school, and I would say the mm. majority of us all burnt out, and we're like, this is not sustainable, this is not healthy. But there are still a couple that are in that world, and I'll say it, will they're freaks, they're weird. <laughs> well, they would have to be though <laughs> to survive that, to thrive in that. Yeah. Luckily, you've entered into another profession that is totally <laughs> healthy and normal. <laughs> yeah. yeah so everyone's, everyone's, everyone's cool. Everyone's great and fine. <laughs> Everyone's really chill, so it's nice. A few people who could have done with some discipline in their lives, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so um, what's your relationship now? So something like that could really like mean that like I'm never going to touch the double bass again. What's your relationship to the instrument now? Do you play? Are you able to enjoy it for like you know recreation or fun? Do you have that love of it in any way do anymore? I just pick it up. Um, yeah, no, I don't really play double bass anymore. I'm only because I live in share houses in Sydney. Yeah. Like, there's no room tough to for say. It. It's me yeah. and my double bass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, gonna need two rooms. Exactly, the bass yeah. likes to sleep in its own room. <laughs> well, people will literally sleep in the double bass storage mm. room at school yeah. because, like, the it was just easier to stay there than to go home, <laughs> which is again insane. People were rooting in there a lot. Actually, they would make like little bed fortresses out of all the double bass cases. It was a horny place. Um, anyway, just <laughs> a bit of color for the people who need to imagine what that world was like. It was horny. It was very horny. Um, my, <laughs> my current relationship to, I, yeah, I don't really play, I still play music just for fun. And, and like, I like sharing music. I've like, um, been like working a little bit with, um, the Sydney Symphony Orchestra this year, like working on their kindergarten program, like teaching like little kids about classical music, which I love, like, because these are kids who haven't been outside of their house much the past five years they've been alive. And so it is very lovely to watch music from the perspective of people who don't even have never seen that many instruments, that many like live players on stage all at once. And like, their tiny little faces are very nice. Whereas I'm coming from it from like a, it took everything from me, like kind of place. So it's nice. <laughs> yeah. To see people engage with it in what is actually a healthy way, as opposed yeah. to the way that you were forced to engage in yeah, it, yeah, yeah. which was completely unhealthy and drained all the love away for a fair totally. while. It seems. Yeah. Okay. So you get to 21 years of age, you've been training all your life to be one thing. Yeah. And then you're not. Yeah. That thing that has been, I imagine, 
the spine of your entire identity. So, I mean, to be that good at something at that age, like it's rare that you have a, a broader range of wide interests, I imagine, right? Like it's mostly this. And so it goes away. Like what does that feel like to have that thing that you thought you were going to be completely sort of, you know, to remove it from your life, to ex- exercise it from your life? I felt very obviously very lost. But then I wonder like, I feel like generally 21-year-olds are pretty lost. Like, who knows what – I mean, yeah, I I look around at my friends I had at the time who weren't in music and I'm also like, yeah, they didn't fucking know either. Um, and so, yeah, I just remember being, like, very embarrassed that I wasn't doing it. And it's funny as well because my parents were like – well, you better get back to music school. It's like the only real job you can have, which is so funny because like music's not a real job, but they were like, yeah. well, like yeah. <laughs> you fucking deadbeat. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, weird. it's weird that your fallback is music school. <laughs> totally. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up just like going to, uh, transferring out of like the conservatory of music to like main campus at Sydney Uni and doing an arts and science degree like everyone else. And I was just kind of doing it because... I didn't have anything else to do, you know? I was just like, well, I may as well be somewhere and my friends are here, so I'll just, like, come do that and hang out. And I was studying art history and psychology um, and just, like, kind of in my first uh, lecture of psychology, there was a guy heckling um, the lecturer and I turned around and it was my best friend from primary school. So I was like, okay, really? this is the right place I should be in. <laughs> yeah. And my friend Jordan, and um, he's like, he was, he's like a very funny guy and stuff. And he was involved a lot in like uni comedy. And so he's like, oh, do you want to come to this? And I was like, yeah, okay. And then I would just like kind of hang out. It was just like, um, I've heard other people talk about this podcast and I feel like you're getting like the Rashomon of like all these people at this, like, Project 52 comedy club thing that was happening at Sydney Uni 10 years ago. I like – I mean, one of the things that I have enjoyed about doing this show over the years is that it is all interconnected. Like, I I rarely talk to anyone on this show that isn't connected to my world in some way. It's rare that the person is, like, a complete stranger to me. Like, and – it is all interconnected, which is part of it, but I love hearing these oral histories that sometimes you've gone three months before hearing the next chapter or somebody else's perspective. So it's actually one of the great delights to me has been putting together the jigsaw of these times and spaces where these things happen. And, you know, there is a big imprint on the Australian cultural scene from a particular period of time, even like a bit before – like the the legacy was there a little bit before that generation. Obviously, it was created before that. But for the last twenty or thirty years, like Sydney University, there's been quite a lot of creativity that totally. has come, come out of there. So, okay, so paint me more of the picture of like where you're at. You've suddenly gone out of this intense thing. You've decided to stay at Sydney University. You're hanging out more in comedy. What mm. happens next? Like, when yeah. do you start like not just hanging out, but like taking part? I think like I just spent like my first year kind of just hanging out at the gigs and like I would help out on the door and I'd do like costumes or something or, you know, whatever, just pretty casual. And every now and again they'd be like, oh, we need someone to be a tree or whatever and I would jump up. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then I don't know, I think I – I don't know why, but there was a sketch that I wrote with Ben Jenkins and it was called uh, – it was really timely. It was called Lady Haha, the Lady Gaga of comedy. And it was, <laughs> it was so stupid. <laughs> but it was like um, 
<laughs> I always go into things costume first is how I've figured out. Yeah, sure. And so like rather than writing the sketch, I just like made a cape that had was glittering and it had a thou- like thousands of googly eyes on it. And then I wore that over like um, a Jerry Seinfeld, like white tee, blue jeans and white sneakers. And so the whole conceit of the bit was like, it's Lady Gaga trying to do like a very relatable Seinfeld comedy, (laughs) but it's completely unrelatable because she doesn't live in this place. Yes. Yeah. So it was just like her like talking about the traffic um, on her like invisible jet plane. It was very silly. I was drinking a beer with a straw so many choices were being made it's I like mean, it feels like too many <laughs> oh, like even boy. hearing this description of it i feel like there was too much to try and concentrate oh my on God. but, but I, like, yeah i don't i oh, yeah it was a lot but also it's that thing of like um I think in hindsight now, because I came from a place of like, you have to be the best. You have to have done everything. I think I just came into the thing with such intense energy. I'm like, the cape must have a thousand eyes on it. I must be. Yeah. Um, And then from there, I just kind of started doing more performing and more improv and writing and stuff like that. And then all of my friends around that time were doing raw comedy And I had no idea what the fuck it was, but I was like, I'll do it. Like, why not? And I just like banged together five minutes of material and then got through the national final. And um, in a story that I realize infuriates a lot of people now, (laughs) Um, because again, it was just like not a thing I was expecting to do. But then, yeah, got to the national final of that. I'd never even been to Melbourne before. And then like, it was the first time like, I had flights paid for me. Like I didn't have to fly myself. And off the back of that, like I booked like a few months worth of work and I was like, well, fuck it. Like I'll just go with this. Why not? Uni is not going to go anywhere. Art history is not going anywhere. So I may as well just like go with it. And that was 12 years ago. What was your set? Do you remember what you were doing on stage? Because I'm the truth of it is that, I mean, yes, I'm sure that story does infuriate some people, but (laughs) raw comedy is actually meant to be, it's not meant to be an open mic competition. It's meant to be for people who don't, because I I used to host the national final of raw comedy back in the day. And the thing that I would always say to people was just enjoy what's happening right now, because this is all pretend like the the real work of whether you're going to be a professional comedian or not, it's going to be the next 50, hundred gigs you do at all sorts of rooms everywhere. Like, I mean, it's, this is just a step on the journey. This is a fun experience. And the idea of raw is actually not that it's meant to service those who are already doing open mic. It's actually meant to service those who wouldn't be able to access comedy through open mic because there's already a way to access comedy for open mic if you're willing to build your career through that way. You don't need a comedy competition. It's for people who haven't tried it before who might have an aptitude for it. So I actually think this is actually what the the, the competition is for, but I'm very interested seeing that you hadn't been honing your act on the open mic scene. What, yeah. what did you choose to write about? What did you think would be funny? What was the act? It was more like character driven. So, um, I like, I, so I'd done bits and bobs of stand up at project 52 and like I, I wrote songs and I did, used to do like a lot of musical comedy. So it was mostly like a musical comedy set, um, that was like kind of this like onstage character I had, which is basically like Sarah Silverman in hindsight, if we're being real about it. 
Um, <laughs> it's okay. Sarah Silverman yeah. is also not Sarah Silverman. Totally. Like Sarah Silverman, I know Sarah Silverman and uh, Sarah is, you know, very different to the person, you know, that you see on stage Absolutely. and everybody knows as Sarah Silverman. That is also a character. Yeah. But like that was basically, you yeah. know, she was the stand-up, the female stand-up that I liked mm. the most and I liked her jokes and so I yeah. just wrote like in the voice that I imagined like I thought it was my voice, but now in hindsight, I see it was absolutely. <laughs> like, and it's funny. Good, I, good person to learn from, though. Like I mean, Sarah's yeah. one of the great joke writers. I mean, I think she's on the public record saying that she regrets maybe some of the things she joked about in her early career. But but her craft, her skill as a joke writer, is fantastic, and she is yeah. a very good performer. Yeah, and also just like as a woman, like. It, she's like the biggest female com- comedian I saw at that time, you know, and I had like Jesus's magic on t- yeah. some terrible DVD, like, and yeah, it's and, funny. And if, if people haven't seen that, there's a few jokes in it that probably don't st- stand, stand up, up by no. today's, but fuck, it was funny at the time. Like yeah. I remember watching that and just thinking this is for the time a hilarious show absolutely and again i'm what like uh, 21 like i'm an idiot my frontal cortex hadn't (laughs) developed yet you can't blame me i don't think i did anything dodgy i mean that sets literally on youtube so you can Mm. go look it up i don't think i don't stand by everything in it but i I think as far as like the first five minutes of material that's written it's not terrible um, but yeah, it is funny actually. I met Sarah Silverman once. It was like uh she had opened for John C. Riley's folk band. And <laughs> um and also Todd Glass was there, like yeah. who's also amazing. Mm-hmm. And um I like I was with Reese Nicholson, we were so excited to see Sarah and we like ran up and uh <laughs> we both just fucking biffed it where like I was like, I just have to say I owe so much to you. Like without you, I wouldn't be doing comedy. And she's like, really nice. She's like, oh, thank you. And then Todd's like, what does that mean? And I'm like, oh, I just mean like, you know, I I feel like I've I've learned so much from you. I've borrowed so much from you. And he's like, so what are you, stealing a material? Like, what is that? And I was like, ah! And I was like, clearly he was having fun, but I was just so like anxious and nervous. And then Reese and I ended up just talking to her, not about any of her actual work, but about one episode of a web series she'd been on that like she was a, it was like a talk show web series, like back in the early days of YouTube. And we just talked to her about that and then she left. And then we were both like, why did we do that? That was one of the worst interactions. But yeah, it was amazing too. I was so keen to be Sarah Silverman's friend that uh, I was in LA um, uh, just when I first moved over there and um, Justin Hamilton and I, Justin was overstaying and we were having um, a meal at a, at like a cafe down the road and she was at a table nearby. And Justin's like, you should just go and say hello. Just go and tell her you're a comedian and like introduce yourself and like Justin's go and say hello. so nice. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I am like, nah. Not meeting in this context. Don't, I've got a long-term plan on this. And <laughs> I like – so when she came to Australia, I did support for her shows in Australia and we became – Todd was on those shows as well. Like I remember taking Todd and Sarah to – uh, Carl Chandler's Thursday oh, night, amazing. you know, gig at in Spleen? Melbourne. It was no, it was even before it was at no, it wasn't Monday Night Spleen. It wasn't his uh, anyway. It was way back in the day when it was in a completely different place. And then when I went to LA, like I ended up doing a bunch of her shows, and we were hanging out. And one night I was smoking a joint with her at the back of a show, and I messaged Justin, and I was like, 
achievement up. Yes! I did it, the, you know what I mean? Like I didn't want to – I had a whole plan. I, I wanted to – be able to actually be friends with her. Yeah. yeah. She's cool. She's a good person to have as a inspiration. I like that as a story. Yeah. So, um, okay. So you do this raw comedy thing. It goes quite well. Obviously there's, you know, so what happens next after that then? Um, like I, so I quit uni, did that. Um, oh, so you quit uni. Yeah. Well, I was like, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> I kind of am always just like, I may as well just yeah. see how far I can go with it, you know? Uh, because, sure. like, I've started again before. I'll start again, again, you know? Like, so I just was like, I'll just do it. And so I, I and honestly, I got booked like two months at the store, which again, like, is unheard of for a lot of comedians. So, like, I just went with it. And, like, things just kept happening that I was like, this seems to be where I should be. And I loved it so much. But, like, a large part of it as well was like the hang. Like I love being around comedians and I love chatting with them and I love traveling with them and working with them. And um, yeah, and it was crazy to think now, but like my best friends at the time were like Ronnie Chang and Reese Nicholson and like Matt Okine. And like, we're all kind of starting out at the same time. And um, we went on this like tour all together um, around like regional New South Wales and Queensland, like just in a van for three weeks. And it was amazing. I was like, I've just, I've never, I don't know. I just, I just always thought I would just take every single opportunity. I was so green as well. And I think I just needed to be in that period of my life where I would just say yes, to everything I would do gigs and like bars underneath a TV playing the state of origin next to like a pool table. <laughs> like I would do anything because I just loved it so much. And it made me feel so happy. And I don't know. It's just the interesting thing that like when I played classical music, I was always in like a 72 piece orchestra. And so it's like you work, you function as one kind of small part in a larger thing. Whereas like comedy was the first time I ever was just like by myself and everything that was happening to me was kind of in my control and I really liked that. It felt like, I don't know, the least amount of hands between you and the actual thing you're making, if that makes sense. It does make sense, of course. And uh, uh, I'm interested in, I guess because you came to it a little later, like it wasn't what you were going to do. You're not one of those people who you know, has been dreaming of being a comedian since you were 15 yeah. years old. I always revered comedy. Like I always thought okay. it was. Okay, you were into it. Yeah. You, you had a passion I for loved it. You thought, it. Okay. And I always thought comedians were literally magicians. Like I thought I just, and that's why I was like, I could never do it because it's magic to me. Like, and my parents would always take me to things. Like we went to the comedy store a few times. Like my dad would get, find like cheap tickets on the internet and go. Um, <laughs> and like, I remember there used to be like a, a show at Belvoir Street Theatre on Sunday nights. And like me and my high school mates would go and like watch like comedy shows there and you know, I was lucky that like YouTube was really becoming a thing as I was growing up. So you would see like a lot of these specials and whatever. The I'd watch the I'd watch the Glass House and um, <laughs> uh, just like any way I could consume comedy, I absolutely would. I just never thought I could do it until I was literally pushed on stage Doing by it. my friends. You know. Yeah. And the other, I guess, like, the main thing as well around this is, like, so my friend Jordan, who kind of got me in with all these people, um, 
and like you know I started becoming really good friends with like Michael Hing and like Ben Jenkins and Stephen Raskopoulos and Alex Lee and like all these very 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 talented comedians um, and then we all were out at a show one night and Jordan was performing and then on the way home Jordan was hit by a car and he died and I think that was also like a large part of why I was like I should do this because like because nothing else has brought me this much joy and connection and also because like this was Jordan's entire life and now he's not here anymore and I kind of see it as a way to like connect to that version of myself and and him as well I don't know he he died and he was very young and then also like my cousin died similarly around the same time he's also quite young he was making like a skateboard documentary at the time and I think I just was surrounded by people who like were gone, who died, but they were in the middle of the thing that they loved the most. And so I just didn't feel like there was any time to waste. So I just went straight into it, you know? What 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 is it that you – I mean, I like, thank you for sharing all that. Um, what is it about it? Like when you say the love, the joy, these are the things that you said at the start, love and joy, like just in relation to – this at this moment of the your life, I'm not. I'm sure there's been plenty of times since this moment where stand up hasn't or comedy hasn't brought oh, yeah, you love totally. and joy. Totally, yeah. and it's but, so funny with like new young comics coming through. They're like, yeah. "Oh, I'd love to talk to you about it." I'm like, "What do you want to know, kids? Like, <laughs> yeah. that I'll take everything from you. Um. <laughs> Any success that you have has to come from someone else. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and there'll be another you in ten years asking." you the same questions <laughs> but at the time in that moment as you said like i mean and i don't think you need to go into it in any more detail for people to understand how much it would mean to have someone who was such a friend of yours but also had opened this door to you to to not be there anymore to be snatched away way too young in their life like i think we can all understand how emotionally traumatic that would be but tell me about you know how doing live performance and the love and the joy that you were getting from that like tell me a little bit more about how you did find that or or channel that into that or what that meant to you at that time I guess like um I, yeah I mean I'm sure it's come across I'm a very anxious person <laughs> and I constantly worry about the future um, and I guess like in those moments, like obviously with like the loss of someone, you kind of, you, the future doesn't exist because like you're just processing what's happening in that moment, you know? And, um, like in a way that's like very freeing and, um, in, when I perform, oh man, it's just like very vulnerable, not even like the talking about people you... <laughs> I've, I've lost but like just in the like what I feel when I'm on stage it's like I don't like when it's really good and I think like a lot of performers can relate to this you kind of don't exist in like a f like worrying about the future like you're literally just feeling like a connected like I feel very connected to like people who come to my shows like um in that not necessarily that we have to agree on everything or whatever but just that like it is the most flow statey thing I can imagine you know um, and it's like how I feel when I swim in the ocean or, you know, that kind of thing. Oh my God. I hate saying this out loud, but it is how I truly feel. Like I, I really do feel like I, um, am kind of, yeah, just 
ultimately very grounded in a moment and time doesn't exist. Which So firstly, I would say this. Thank you. This is the absolute place for you to be sharing these thoughts. Okay. There is no – this is the safest of all safe spaces okay. because – like this is what this show's for. This is what people come here and we talk about these things. We we talk about, you know, the things about our ego or about our connectedness to the world that we wouldn't necessarily talk about in another environment. That's I would hate more if you held that back from me rather than you shared it with me. So please don't feel uncomfortable about that in any way. I love it. I'm here yeah. for it. Absolutely. And also, Do you know what I think, it is? I just, yeah. I did an episode of the Dum Dum Club this morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a very Which similar is, podcast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I love Dum Dum, but it's a very similar <laughs> podcast. So I've just come from an energy yeah. where we uh, make farting noises at each other, and uh, anyway, <laughs> to where this is like a very genuine and warm <laughs> place. Yeah. You're like you can say things out loud without them being used against you yeah, for the next yeah, forty-five yeah. minutes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's not going to be chanted at me in a fucking pub in melbourne next comedy festival you know i will say that i i, I do I, I genuinely mean it when i say to people you can say all your most embarrassing things here because this audience who listens to this they know that's what this show's for and they know that if they ever make they chanted at somebody in a pub <laughs> one day it's gonna ruin it for everyone because i'll just stop doing it you know yeah, yeah, and, yeah. but also i think you're right that's the more important bit. I think, like, I personally think that what you said is absolutely like, 100% it- on the spot. Like, yeah. you know, there's that, uh, the unproblematic recently deceased uh, Barry Humphreys. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Once, uh, there's the famous Barry Humphreys line that, you know, is some version of, you know, he was asked how he feels walking out on stage, you know, in front of all those thousands of people. And he it, it, supposedly he said, alone at last. And yeah. hello, hello to Sam Peterson, who will be listening to this, who finds <laughs> that the most hilarious quote of all time. But I like it. And yeah. the reason I like it is because it speaks to, in my mind, what you you said right then, which is when you are doing comedy – like sometimes people will ask you, they say, how do you do your job when your life is shit? And yeah. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Like sometimes it, I'm better at it and it's easier to do when my life is shit yeah. because for an hour a night or for whenever I'm working on the thing, I can get a break from the troubles of my life because to do my job well, it requires 100% of being in that moment. And the minute you're totally. thinking of why didn't that last joke work or did I leave the iron on at home or oh, after this I've got to bother, then you're not doing your job properly. You're not in that moment. Like, so I think you're right. Like you, you, I think when you say that idea of being having a connection with your audience, that resonates with me a lot because they don't have to agree with you. They are having an experience with you in the same way as people who go away on a sporting trip together are bonded by the experience. Or I imagine going away with an orchestra, you are very disparate people, but you are bonded by an experience you might have had where you all went to France and played in this con- you know, concert or whatever it might be. You get bonded by that. And yeah. a good show can be that. It doesn't yeah. have to be agreement. It's just we all went through this together. Yeah. And there's definitely times in my life where, like, life has been so shit that, like, going on stage didn't help. And, like... Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, there's also that. Yeah. There's also and, times like, you should ask yourself, should I be going on stage Yes. Right now? Yeah. yeah. And, like, I think that's also part of, like, the learning, too, where you go, like, oh, well, I only exist on stage and therefore, like, it doesn't matter. And, like, I've been through that stage as well. Um 
But I think, and I don't know, and maybe like you can tell me, like I'm sure that as you get better and better and better at the craft of it all, you kind of find those moments where you're just like in it and you're just feeling things and like you're kind of like seeing the crowd and reacting of it. And like that's how I feel when it's really, really good. And I guess what I'm chasing is that being kind of the baseline, but I don't think it can be the baseline, which is why you chase it. Like at your stage in your career, do you find that feeling often or are you still kind of finding moments where you're like, it's just not clicking tonight, like I'm just – I don't, I don't know. Is I that mean, okay to same, ask? No, oh, I mean, absolutely it's okay to ask. The only thing I hesitate about answering you is people have heard me talk about this particular part oh, of it okay, a lot, sorry. which is – No, that's okay. Um, but I'm happy to talk to you about – because what I like is what your reaction to this might be and where it mm. takes you. So, like, I, I don't actually mind saying things again, like, because I think every single person I say it to will have a different reaction or add something on or give me a different perspective on it, you know? Yeah. And so – but the thing that I say a lot, and I think it is true of me in particular, which is that I, at some stage during my career, reconciled with the fact that I would never, I would only be ever chasing moments of perfection. Yeah. Like, that there is, as you said, no way. I have chosen to try to do something that is impossible to master. And even in the brief moments where somebody masters it, like talk about a Seinfeld or a Jesus is Magic. I would have said at the time when Jesus is Magic came out, it was almost like a perfect comedy special. I look back on it now through today's lens and I could tell you a whole bunch of things about it that don't stand up by today's standards. So even this thing that was right at the time, like, I mean, look at Eddie Murphy's, like, you know, Raw and Delirious. I mean, like some of that stuff's like hate crime material. You yeah, know? But, yeah, yeah, yeah. At, 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 at the time were these perfect artistic expressions of where Eddie Murphy, oh, I mean, he was an 18, 19-year-old, you know, superstar. Like, you know, that was his experience. That was like his life in the context of the world. But but even if those things were perfect at the time, like you listen back to Lenny Bruce or even George Carlin, some of that stuff's pretty slow moving by today's standards of what we expect from our comedy. So not only have you signed up to something that is impossible to get right but in the rare moments you do get it right you know like we're talking about that idea of it can be right one night and then it's gone again the next like or you can even have it. within the same Hold hour in your hand. oh like, yeah of course where you're like bang 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 like i'm fucking crushing this and then the moment you go like i'm crushing and then something just like like falls and you're just like oh man like and then it can pick up again i love that like ride of it like i do really love that and i love that it's never ever the same and that it's imperfect always. Like that's what I love about it because I think coming from classical music where it had to be perfect always to like this, like the imperfect nature of it is what it is, is so good. And I love that it only exists in the room at that time. Like obviously people can record comedy and we make these stand-up specials and whatever, but they're, they exist entirely separate from what it actually is. And I just, I love it. Like I love it so much. Like, yeah, and that's what I kind of am always chasing. But I think for me, a lot of my problem is like I'm a bit, I'm a bit fucked in the head, and so <laughs> it's like the half an hour leading up to the show. That's like I feel like the biggest, like the mountain that I'm climbing is really just like to not freak myself out before the half an hour before the show. 
Okay, so I, I want to say something really quickly and then I want to explore that a little. So yeah. Rich, Rich Hall, the comedian Rich Hall, said that comedy is a joke-by-joke joke job application and I think that speaks to that idea of what you say about like they like, yes, you're hired. Yes, you're hired. You're fired. Like, I mean, we can feel that in a gig. But I think that there is a trick to it which is like – and I think this is also probably a trick with job applications which is to go into them – like as if you have the power. If yeah, you're yeah, the yeah. one deciding whether you will accept the job, not the other way around. And I think when it comes to comedy, there's an element of that as well. Like it Absolutely. is a job application, but you've actually, I mean, I even say it to an audience sometimes, like just for fun, which is like, I know that you think you're judging me, yeah. but I'm here every night. Yeah. Like I'm judging you, right? Like, yeah. You know, like, yeah. I, and there is that. But let's now get to this 20 minutes before, half an hour before, <laughs> what, what, what's going on here? Like what, what is happening during that time? What, what's, like what is that? What do you speak to when you say it's the time before? Like for me, I have to say as loosey-goosey as I can because if I start thinking about it, I'll clam up and choke, which is <laughs> exactly what happened at the beginning of this pod. But like I, yeah, so – like I remember Nick Cody once saying like he saw me just like looking over my set list and like, you know, like really tensing up and he's like, it's too late. <laughs> like He's like, you looking at that set list now, it's not going to change anything that happens on stage. Like, whereas, and like, and he was being cheeky, but he's right. Like nothing, me looking at a bunch of words on a page at that point was not going to change the outcome. So now like for me, it's like, how do I stay loosey goosey? And it's usually playing video games on my phone, which is like so bad, but like mindless, like candy crush where I'm not in my head at all because I've already kind of metabolized the set, I guess. And also I am anticipating that it's happening in the moment. So I just have to like stay open to that. I don't know. Like I, I like worked a lot with Reggie Watts and like opened for him on a few tours and he improvises like an hour and a half of show. Like it's never the same ever. And that was like the big thing I learned from him was it's literally about walking out and being ready to let the show happen yeah. rather than you being like, I'm coming on and I'm controlling this and the audience better react like this, otherwise I've done my job. And it's like he's like, I was so tense and then I would go on and I would just see him create something new and something that people loved every single night out of nothing. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's I can start loosening it up and I can start just like trusting myself a bit. Well, I think also it's going to help your work. So you've got to think about what's productive for me once I get onto the stage, right? Because is it more productive for me to be going over the notes or is it more productive for me to actually be completely not thinking about it so the minute I walk on stage, I'm in a good spot? Like some of the simplest advice I ever give people and it's from long like I from some I was not this person. Like it's one of these things that I wish someone had said to me early on in life though. But I honestly believe that that first couple of seconds when you walk on stage, like I was giving someone advice about the gala this year uh, at the comedy festival and the biggest – so I said the biggest piece of advice I could give you is take your time walking out there. It'll feel like you're going really slowly but it's like, don't worry, they'll clap until you get there. Yeah. And then before you start, just take a moment like – just for yourself before you get into it. But also all that says is to the audience because I use this one all the time as well. But like they say on the plane when the captain tells you at the start that they're taking it up to 30,000 feet and around to the east or whatever, that is 
unnecessary information for any of us on board the plane to have. The only Mm. reason that exists is that we need to be reassured before something scary that there's somebody who knows what they're doing in charge of it all, right? Yeah. And that first couple of seconds, all the audience want, they want you to be good. They just need to be reassured really early on that you think you're good. Yeah. You know, that you think you deserve the job, that you're not constantly applying for the job. And I think that whatever gets you into that state, there is no right or wrong thing before you go on stage about what you should be doing. What you need to do is walk on stage like you belong there. And the audience needs to get a sense from you. And it doesn't have to be bravado. It just has to be in character to who you are. But as you said, you don't want to start with the the breakdown yeah. unless that's the point. Or like, like the I mean, tenseness. that could be the point. Yeah. But if you're going to ease into, like the way we're talking to each other now, you want to be able to do that at the start, right? Yeah. You want to come on with the energy that you're going to actually settle into. And I was notorious for coming on way too big and then finally settling down. Or maybe never settling down, you know, only having to go up if, if you know, there wasn't that there. But I think what you learned from Reggie, and it's certainly something I do with my improvised shows as well, is that idea of just going, the show is whatever, whatever happens from when I start to when I finish. That's the show. Yeah, yeah. And like letting go, it's very Buddhist. You're letting go of the outcome. You're just happening. And it's funny, like I remember Claudia Doherty was telling me like at the start of her festival shows, she would like just do something really high. Like she did a show and it was like her like dancing really high energy and like high-fiving everyone in the audience. And it wasn't because like that's a great energetic way to start, but it was just because she could get out the like – Whatever it, it was is, her way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She, like, she, she, she didn't take it into her the rest of her show. Yeah, there was a way of just shaking it all out as part totally. of the show. Yeah, and I thought that was so genius because it's like it's so charming as well to see this small little lady high fiving people and dancing. I mean, it makes a lot of sense though. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Okay, so. Um, so the 20 minutes before though, like, so distraction is part of it, as you said, and you did mention before about the, the, you know, the TikTokification of your brain, if you will, or like social media and how you're not on much of it, but you are on TikTok. So, you know, and you, you know, then you talk about games on your phone. What's your relationship with social media, with technology, you know, with all those things? Cause it feels like we've got a bit of a mixed picture so far. Yeah. I used to be so, like, pro sharing everything. And I think that's because, like, I'm of my generation. And, like, we grew up and we were like, the personal's political. Like, you, like, telling me what you feel all the time is changing the world. And, like, I think, like, on some level it's definitely changed how we – the discourse, let's say. But, um, you know, to be – to put it very bluntly, like, I was stalked for – I years and that was a tool with which I was like stalked you know they scraped information from my social media profiles in order to get closer to me and then yeah and so as a matter of personal safety I don't share a lot but then even before that kind of all really came to a head I didn't like being that available to people and I didn't and I, it's kind of the antithesis, I think, of creativity, like being like, well, I've got to protect myself. But I also think like you can be creative and share with people, but in a way that is safe for you. Oh, I mean, it's, it's, th- there has been a commodification of 
people's lives to an unhealthy level. There is yeah. no doubt about that. This idea that uh, absolutely should be people should be free to share as much as they want to share. I'm not here to say that people shouldn't be able to do that. You can live stream your entire life, 24 yeah. hours a and day. Fuck, if, I'll watch it. You know, some of it I yeah. love. Like, and if that's your thing, mm. absolutely. But there was an expectation almost that that was compulsory for a mm. while. And this is just us learning how these – like, I mean, social media has been around for most of your life in some form, whereas for me, I kind of have had half of my life in a world without social media and then half of my life in a world that where – so I, I can really see how distinctly it's changed. Like, you know, most of my favourite – bands and artists and even comedians back in the day i know fuck all about yeah and there's still some even now mm. tell me like i know carl baron and i know nothing about it. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah <laughs> like, and yeah, i love that still, yeah right it's yeah. great so this idea that you need to constantly be you know that it's compulsory for you you're allowed to hold back whatever it is that you should hold back and i think it's a great creative decision to hold it back because so often the way that we're asked to do it in this new infrastructure is for free or for the promise of some reward. Totally. Whereas you could be actually using that creativity for your own work. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's the thing of like, everyone tells you like, you've got to maintain a presence. Like you have to have a social media presence. And like, for me, there was a time where like social media was a great medium to be funny and like share things and whatever. But ultimately, but I also think, you know, it's, it's not, I don't know. I just don't think it's as safe for people to do that. And I've just seen like a lot of young comics go through this thing where like they're uploading like every single set and like new stuff. Like, you know, when you do TV, like comedy or whatever, if you do a stand up show on com like TV, the idea is you probably won't do that set again. Like that set gets burnt. But now the model is like everything you do, every joke that you write, doesn't matter if you've only been doing it for a couple of weeks or like years is up on the internet now and I think that comes with varying levels of like good and bad and I've just seen like a lot of young comedians kind of have their confidence knocked or you know been genuinely traumatized by people on the internet because they've shared something that probably maybe wasn't ready yet or you know was like pushed into some awful algorithm which then gets shared on like awful sites and then they become the target and it's not about the joke at all i don't know and also i will say to any of those people who are listening there is never a point where you grow out of that like i mean follow ricky gervais on fucking social media and you'll know that he still sees his complaints and gets worried about them and stuff like so you can either be that someone who's still at that level of success is worried that people are saying mean things about them on the internet or you can actually choose, and this is the biggest con of like the social media infrastructure is that you have to engage with the comments and the feedback, right? Because on a lot of the algorithms, as far as I can tell, like things like TikTok, they do reward engagement, Engagement, right? specifically negative engagement too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's not healthy. No. <laughs> no, it's bad. But that's why I'm like, I'm not on there. I'm not on there as a comedian. I'm on there just no. watching shit. Like I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I mean, but that's I, not a healthy infrastructure. That to be successful, you have to engage with ne negative feedback. That's totally. That's but it's, bad. That's but then it's like the economic model around comedy is like you have to have X amount of followers on these platforms in order for us to like, can you know, like I don't know. 
No, no, that's interesting. So yeah. talk to me about that because that's not something that when I speak of – yeah, because I've been off socials, hate talking about it, mm. talk about it all the time. Uh. <laughs> no, but I've been off socials now for about eight months and yeah. fully mm. and it, greatest things ever happened in my life. But I also understand that I come from an incredibly privileged position when I have this conversation, which is my career is already established and also there is still someone running my socials. Like I am, So for business purposes, they still exist. It's just not me. And that led to me going even further with that, which is literally now – I don't engage in any feedback at all. Like I've never really been a big review reader, but I've stopped reading. Like I had a period where I was like, if it's positive, send it to me. I'll have yeah, a read, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah. Like, but now it's like no feedback at all. I don't want to know. I just don't want to know one way or the other. I just want to concentrate on what I think. But again, that's la- a later in life, later in career privilege that I can now make that decision. I'm not certainly saying that some new person coming through the comedy infrastructure right now should not be on social media because obviously it's a huge part of how people's careers are built. So it would be, you'd have to be brave to be the person who says, no, I'm not going to be engaging in that in some way. But talk to me about the monetization of the industry. What does it look like from someone who's at your position in the industry versus where my position is. Yeah. I mean, I say, uh, yeah, like, so what am I? Would I be a mid-career comedian? I guess. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I I mean, because I've Mm -hmm. done like radio and TV and stuff like that. I mean, mean, you feel like an established person in the – I would imagine to most people – that you are considered to be like an established, yeah. you know, well-known I'm not Australian starting comedian. Out. Yeah. yeah, I'm not starting out. And so like for me it's obviously a different again. But I will say like, you know, because I have done a lot of the things that you do when you're trying to like have a long-term um, comedy career in this country, you kind of do hit a ceiling where you're like, all right, well, what else can I do? Because there isn't like, and again, I've heard other people in this podcast talk about this, like there isn't a place for live stand-up anymore in this, on TV in this country. And even like people of my generation, like aren't really watching as much TV as they were, or like they're being much more cheesy with it. So the internet is like one of the biggest distribution models you can use if you're at this point. And like, for me, that's like, I'm coming up, I've got like a podcast I'm putting out later this year. Um, I'm looking at like developing this live show. So yes, I can like record it and make a special and hopefully sell it or just put it on YouTube, like whatever. Um, And like sharing clips to TikTok because like the algorithm will expose you to people. And it's things like that, but it's also like all of those, like, the only way to fund that is through advertising now. And it's like, you have to kind of almost be like a semi influencer or like you are, you know, playing every single club in the country constantly and on the road all the time. And it's just like, not a way that I can live my life. Like I know other people definitely can. And I am in awe of those people who are like total gig pigs. But for me, it's like my energy is like very selective. Like I just need like intense periods of work and then I need time off. I just can't be on the road all the time. Um, Also, nor necessarily is it the right way to do it. One of the things I love about Kitty Flanagan, for example, is Kitty likes to do no more than sort of four shows but like often less than four shows in a weekend and only every second weekend so she enjoys it yeah so every time she goes on stage 
you know, she doesn't do these big, big, long runs where you get to the point where, like, one night you're just like, oh, I wish I didn't have to go to work tonight. She always appreciates going out and being on stage. The other day I was talking to uh, a little-known Australian comedian friend of mine, David William Hughes, and, uh, <laughs> who unexpectedly popped into my house on a bike ride. That's but so he, funny. But the image of him, I'm guessing he's in Lycra. Like, is he a full-on, like, mammal? It wasn't, nah, he was actually, I mean, it was bike ridey ish but more sort of, like, right. You know, um, he doesn't it, have the little like, like right, pleated no. shoes that no, go no, in. No. It wasn't that. Oh man! No. Um, but he, yeah, he was talking because he is a gig pig. He just loves like doing stand up, and it, it really, honestly, doesn't matter if it's some big theater or if it's like you know some open mic night where he can get up. He just likes it. He likes it all the same. And we were talking about club gigs, and I was saying to him that I was like thinking about like maybe getting back into doing some club gigs because. I haven't done a club gig since the pandemic. Um, I used to do a bit of club work and then I just, the pandemic happened and it didn't feel like a very safe environment anymore. And um, and so basically I was just like, I'll just do my shows. I can quarantine those. I can know they're a safer thing. I wrote a show without ever trying any of it in clubs and I, I, I loved it. I liked it a lot more than the things I try in clubs because I realized that in a way I was doing my audience a disservice because my audience are willing to go to a place with me to pursue an idea. Like there's a couple of routines in this year's show that are counterintuitive to a position you think I would probably take on an issue and then I walk you through like why. And my audience are willing to go there with me. But a, a Friday night where I've dropped in at the comedy store might not necessarily be willing to go there. So I yeah. actually felt like... I was limiting myself creatively by testing the material on audiences who wouldn't be wouldn't Receptive come to, to see it. the show. Totally. <laughs> you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Making a compromise for a person who wasn't going to buy a ticket to the actual show that hurt the people who were going to come to the show. So the last two shows, so I tried I decided to do that again this year, which was write, write a show without testing it. But now mm. Now I'm missing the clubs a bit and I actually would like to just go and yeah. do some gigs. And because like and, that's yeah, the hang part in. of it. Like yeah. I like the hang, but then it's – but then not always I don't love the hang. But like, you know, I do like – I do feel inspired watching other people, you know, I, and just seeing what people are up to. I do like that. But then on the flip side, I'm kind of the same. Like, And also, you know, I'm mates with like the Auntie Donna guys and I remember we toured Falls and they talk about stand-up as if it's like completely – separate thing from what they do whereas I've always thought like well you're comedians and you do the festival and I'm comedian and I do the festival but they've always seen it as so like opposite and I guess because like they came from drama school and they kind of see their things as like little plays like and yeah. that's why they're so brilliant in a way because like they create a universe around them and they don't go like oh, right they're not I comedians trying to do sketch comedy they're yeah actors being funny yes but, you know what I mean but they're but like they're also funny. but they yeah. are you know I mean they're very they're all brilliantly funny but uh, totally but there has to be a kind of insulation around them in a way because like imagine if they took that to like to the fucking bachelor party that like booked out like a night at the store because they heard that like there's a the 
groom loves laughs. And then they're just subjected to like these silly little men and their silly little dances. Then like, I feel like that would have quite a negative impact. And so it's like, yeah, I, I mean, like I'm all for people using social media if it works for them and if it finds them the audience that they are looking for. But I also think that people are placing too much in it in a way. And I just think I don't want to be that available. Like I used to love Twitter and I've gotten a lot of jobs off Twitter from like just chucking jokes out all the time. But then it's also like, I just don't want to have to fucking explain myself to some guy who hates, fundamentally hates women. Like, oh, yeah, and there's but so also, much of that. Like, and like I'm, you, you shouldn't have to, um, Twitter, I think is a good example. Cause I mm. love Twitter. Twitter used to be good. Yeah. Like, let's let's not forget that Twitter was a fun place to hang out for a while. 2007, 2008 on Word Twitter, that was fun. That like was fun. Fun jokes yeah. and like it was a good hang of good people. And But like if the Sydney Comedy Store became like a One Nation recruiting office, I still wouldn't ask for sets there. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. just because it's in the Fuck. same room, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it had been bad for a long time before I left it and – uh, you know, and uh, from what I've heard, it hasn't got any better It's getting since worse. I've gone. It's crazy to me that, like, there's still even a conversation about it, like, you know, and like media organizations still being there. I'm like, why? For what? So some guy in somewhere can, like, respond to the New York Times and be like, oh, I think you're a bunch of lizards. Like, who, like, who is this contributing <laughs> to? Like, and then, and then the reply is like, this person thinks the New York Times is a bunch of lizards. And then these people being like, oh, you're so fucking brainwashed by the New York Times, you lizards. And it's just like, what is it contributing to? It's just noise. It's just nothing good happening there. And we need to shut it down. Like, we don't need to be there anymore. It's not creative. It's not helping anyone. I don't think anyone's getting jobs off there. No. Like, there's nothing All positive All the good bits coming. are gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like fucking break it down for parts. Feedback is like had been a constant theme through this, like, you know, and, and you know, where you allow it into your life and when it crosses boundaries and how you decide what's good feedback and what is unwanted feedback and how much you're meant to. Because the other thing is, like, here's what I will tell you about, like, my life, just as an example. As I walk around it and do my day-to-day life, no one – says anything mean to me like you know oh we say it behind your back no 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 oh, fine no, yeah, no, no, but, no, we don't, but, really. but honestly I, of course they do like at least some mm. people do like of course they do oh yeah but if i don't know about it like it i live my you. life and it doesn't hurt me in any way social media brought that into our lives mm. and then told us that it was part of our personalities that we had to hack it, that we had to deal with it, that you had to deal with some misogynist online calling you names or for the very fact that you'd made some art or made a joke, you were going to be hounded for the rest of the day or in your case, like literally someone steps into your real life and like, you know, threatens you and all those sort of things. But even the online aspect of it or these young comedians, as you say, someone putting something up and then reading the negative comments underneath and taking those the heart but also there being an algorithmic expectation that you're going to engage with that I don't know if our brains are set up to be engaging in that much negative feedback from complete strangers like I think I said this to you the other day like I have a little peasant brain like my brain is for a person who lived in the middle ages who never traveled more than three kilometers from their village of 20 people and they weren't meant to know more than 20 people and they weren't meant to go three kilometers more than three kilometers from home and now we're at this point with technology where like technology you know for better or worse and like a lot of like new technology really excites me but also for better or worse things are 
going at such a rate that like our brains just like physically cannot catch up. Like we mm. are not designed to. Oh, we're done. We're never catching up again. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's, it's the, only getting faster and faster. Yeah. And we're just, it's like putting the cart before the horse. Like we're just fucked. Like, and so like for me, I'm like, I feel like I've done this kind of 180 where like, as I was starting out, I was like, I've got to be everywhere. I've got to have a presence everywhere. I've got to be sharing everything all the time. Blah, blah, blah. My sets put it, my sets out here and I'm on here and I'm talking to these people and blah, blah, blah. And it worked for a while. And then, but I've gone completely the other side where I've like gone like, I just, I can't, and it's too much noise. It's too much interaction. It's t- distracting me from what my fucking purpose is or like just making shit. Like I can't, like Ronnie Cheng always says, like, I never want to be a person who talks about cool shit. I want to be a person who makes cool shit. And like, that's like, that's it. It's like, I could be on Twitter debating with some fool who will never buy a ticket to my show and will never come see any live comedy. Or I could just be like at home creating a peaceful life and being a real person and then going and doing my little, you know, show somewhere. Like, that's what I want. That's like all I'm trying to do. Um, but also, yeah, like it is just like speaking like as a woman, as a female comedian, like it is just a tool for misogyny. Like it is. And fundamentally nothing is going to change about that because it's not in the commercial interests of anyone to change that. Because again, TikTok's algorithm thrives on negative interaction. That's of course going to amplify like misogyny, racism, that kind of thing. Because even the people who are fighting those things are mm-hmm. still contributing to that. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I don't know, it's hard not to feel really like drained and uh, hopeless about it. But then I also think that's why I love doing actual live shows with actual live people because no one's like, no one ever fucking says that shit to your face. No one ever. Like, I mean, actually, some people, but yeah, of course, some people, people, but of yeah. such a small percentage of them. Yeah, like you know, this is the the that's why it's such a disproportionate because, of course, it does it waves and mobs, and of course, we have a negative bias. So, it, like that's inbuilt into our brains. We have a negativity bias. So the the truth of it is that even if you know it's one in ten who might be saying something negative, it feels a lot more than that regardless and as you said the reaction reinforces the negativity rather than the fact that people are actually so it's tough like you're locked into this infrastructure in this system and you speak about it from the perspective of being a woman which I think like I mean I know you half said it in a dismissive way like it's almost as if but and I I hate to to say it in a dismissive way because it's like boring and tiring to me to continue talking about it because like I, I can imagine that yeah. of course I, like but I don't feel do like do? obliged by like you to talk about it but it's mostly no. like you just feel like you talk about it so much and it's what not what is it changing. like to be a woman in comedy no. <laughs> thank you so much for asking I've never been anything else um what yeah. can we do though as an industry now I know we can't control so this is what I always think right yeah is you can't control everything, unfortunately. That That's way beyond certainly my capabilities. And I guess that's what all, all I'm asking at the moment is I think you can only ever control – I talk about this with things that I'm on a lot, which is like we can just do try to do things better the way that we do them and hope that that is something that is helpful. But, you know, we're not going to solve the whole grand problem. But what sort of things could people be doing? How do we – because we can't just assume that this is going to be the same – forever is it about 
Like, is there, like, is it, I don't know. I, like, do male comedians need to be more engaged in the fact that this is a real thing that is happening that is disproportionate and speaking to their fans? Or does that make things worse? Like, how does it, like, what's a practical way that we could do something to fucking make this a better situation without, you know, the expectation that you have a solution for, like, you know, the big Systemic picture of how we sexism. solve <laughs> Yeah, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not putting that on you. I've got I'm, a few ideas. Yeah. Um, it's okay. I've got, I've got to. <laughs> I couldn't even name. I was going to make a joke about what's that right-wing influencer that all the kids Andrew are Tate. into. Andrew Tate. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, I've got Andrew Tate on next week. He's going to Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's going to I could not even <laughs> remember what his name was. I mean, yeah, even that, like, for me, um, like, let, I mean, let's speak about the comedy industry, I guess. Like, um, for me, you know, I think the majority of comedians that I encounter are people who obviously don't wish harm on other people. Like, I don't think there are comedians. I mean, obviously I've encountered mm. comedians oh, yeah. who have inflicted mm. harm on other people and I'm sure I will continue to because it is. But I think like the values of the industry as a whole is that we are just trying to make people laugh and like have a good time. But I think what it is, is, I don't know. I was talking to a like young comedian the other day about how he's only started like five years ago or something. And I was just saying like, yeah, like it's been pretty fucked as a woman, <laughs> like even in the last 10 years, like I can't even imagine how it was for women before me, but like in the last 10 years, the rate of change has been huge like you know people have their issues with her or whatever but like I would say like the Amy Schumer program becoming like such a huge success I saw comedians who were openly very very misogynistic on stage and off stage suddenly being like oh women can be funny and like it was just like five years ago that people suddenly believed that women were funny like as a mainstream you know and so I think it's to be mindful that even if you hold in your heart that like you don't harm other people and you don't, you know, believe that women are less than you or whatever, that like it's still like even to just get to this point is like a huge fight and a huge battle and people are very, very tired. Like um, it's not a very good fix for anything. But That's I think okay. it's just the, I mean, sometimes hearing more about it is uh, is also – I mean, I probably was setting the bar too high to think that you had any, you know – but I, but I, I guess I just wanted to talk about it more because I want to acknowledge that it's a thing. Firstly, I think that, like, from my perspective, one of the things I think that men can be better at mm. is acknowledging that it's real and that yes. it is a thing that exists. Exactly. Like, you know, that it's not like you know, oh, you know, like yeah. yeah oh, here we fucking no go again. Yeah, eye roll or reverse sexism or like whatever else it might yeah. be. Just to acknowledge and that. The struggle is—it's a real thing that, and and misogyny online in particular, misogyny society, but misogyny online and on the misogyny of anonymity is like particularly directed. I get negative feedback, but it's not the same sort of negative feedback. It doesn't come then with, you know, the loaded thing that you know that someone of a different color of skin or someone of a different sex or or you know gender or anyone who is non-binary in any other way than the you know, uh, standard A4 white, you know, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, 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 they picked me up for an office <laughs> But, <laughs> you know, I, like I get that, right? Yeah. But, but I, I think that's like, I mean, that's, I just wanted to talk about it because like 
I guess it does. It's it certainly not talking about it hasn't helped us. Totally. I think what it is also like people don't understand like women's rage around it. And I think it's because it is just so the experience of being a woman is the experience of like having to deal with this shit. It's so baked into the, I guess like the furniture, you know, like, um, and like, so I can understand why people would be put off by women being like, we have to fucking do something, you know, because they're like, well, where, whoa, whoa, where did this come from? Like from where I'm standing, it's like women are getting all the jobs now and people uh, don't want straight white men on anything anymore. And like, I understand that, but it's because like there's a fatigue that's been like this and it's for, and like you said, it's for all people who are not straight white men. Like there is an exhaustion because like this has just been a conversation that's been going on and on and on and on for so long and we make little leaps and bounds which is like hugely amazing and beautiful and even just to have the language we do about these things like you know for better or the worse me too movement brought up a lot of new language that we could suddenly define our experiences by like that's great but it's also like exhausting and in a way has made the contrast of things more uh, apparent because you see it more now, like because you have the language to see misogyny, because you have the language to call it what it is. You know, oh, this is a very oh, funny man. podcast. <laughs> uh, it's not meant to be funny. It's okay. Yeah. Jen is all, also on the little dum dum club. You can yeah, go yeah, and yeah. over there and hear very similar. Me just uh, calling <laughs> Carl Chandler a fucking idiot. Um, it's one of the three <laughs> female guests they have a yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's either me or it's Nina Yoyama. You know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in everything um <laughs> but even that like i would say like so nina and i uh during the pandemic really connected right because we were both uh just around because we weren't both traveling all the time and working and we kind of traced back our histories together and she was like i fucking hated you when you when we, i first started and i was like really i didn't know this at all and she's like because the men around me were like that's who you're competing with like that's who's taking yeah. your jobs and for me i was the same with like becky lucas where the men around me were like you like becky lucas like you have to be better than her you have to take her jobs blah 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 blah, blah. and it's just like and now we're all at this stages in our career where like thing we're doing all individually doing like pretty amazing stuff and, like, we're realizing, like, we lost out on community because, like, the people around us, the men around us decided that, like, we needed yeah, to be siloed. Decided there was only one slot for you. So that exactly. you had to compete against each other for that slot rather than yeah. the idea that one of you doing well might lead to there being more than one slot. Yeah, I mean, yes, that's right. It, and I think this is unfortunately what a lot of the online stuff as well is that our online has been – an incredible place for women to be able to express their voice. And this is the upside of online. People who were marginalised previously have had no gatekeepers anymore. They can get their voice, whether it be Black Lives Matter or whether it be Me Too or any of these movements, people who didn't have a voice before have a voice that can be amplified. So that's the upside. So I think, I honestly do think that a lot of this misogyny is like, go away. Like, mm. we're going to run you out of town, you know? Yeah. We don't like it. We don't like that you're coming in. Yeah. You know? And so... And it's like an extinction people gasp. against each other, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, Gruen, you're working on Gruen at the moment. So yeah. this is, like, I mean, culturally, and I'm happy to have this conversation because I think it's, it is indicative of where we are, you know, and, and there's good changes, but also it just takes a lot of work, which is 
Like, I can't imagine if they were commissioning a show today, like Gruen, that they would commission a show. And I'm going to say, without a conversation, without thinking, never a conversation, um, that was three white men, right? Mm. Which is that what that show is, right? The three yeah, yeah, main yeah. cast members, regular cast members, are three white men. Now, I'm not saying it's bad now that they wouldn't cast that show. I'm saying it's bad back then that that was not even a conversation that anyone Totally, had. yeah, yeah, Like yeah. no one thought about it for a minute. Like mm. most weeks we would have four men and one woman on the panel and everyone would think that was good representation. Partly they thought it because for the advertising industry it was. We were reflecting an industry that was actually more cooked when it came to, um, you know, it was all white men basically, the advertising industry. So to take the biggest names there – Mostly they were white men. We were being very representative, we thought. But looking back on it, I mean, you know, we're lucky now that sometimes, you know, Todd or Russell isn't there and we always prioritise not replacing them with another man, you know. And over the years, like, you know, our guests are always female now. It's the best we can do for balance. And, you know, we made changes as the world went on. None of those changes have made the show worse either, by the way. Like, I would say they've all made the show better. But... But it just, even in my lifetime, I can see that there was no conversation around four men being on a panel and one woman being, yeah. never, yeah. not once. Like, it I, never came up. I remember I used to work on this show. I guess I'll say the show, fuck it. I you don't need my, to. You can do what you'd like to do. You whatever can, you feel comfortable whoever's with. Whoever's scrolling through my MDB, oh, you'll yeah. find it. <laughs> anyway, I used to work on this show and um, there were two women on the writing staff and it was – like 12 people up. So like 10 people in the uh, 12 people in the writer's room, 10 of them men, two women. And I remember they initially brought me on. They were like, we're so excited to have you because you're a performer and you're a writer. And what we'll be doing is like, you know, you can write your own bits and you'll be on the show. But it's just so happens that the things I wanted to write about were like female experiences and like things like that. So they just never made the show. And I remember once we wrote a story about um, breastfeeding or something like that. And they were like, oh, we don't think it's working with you. So we're going to give it to this guy (laughs) to do it. And we were like, how does that work? Because this is a story about like, I mean, the joke was this character's breastfeeding and I, I can't remember the exact thing, but it was probably about like being allowed to breastfeed in public. So it was like the the joke is this character's trying to breastfeed while she's doing her news cross or whatever. And then now you're just giving it to this man and they're like, yeah, I guess it doesn't make sense. We'll just cut it. And so they were just like, <laughs> oh my God. And that was like 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah. And, um, I just like remember being like all of these men sitting around at this table at the moment do not believe that they are actively participating in misogyny, right? They re- they really think that they are um, justifying, like they're justified in how they feel. And like I kind of see it or like not so much as like malice but just as like incompetence. Like who knows? You don't know what you don't know. And, well, I, and this is I, – I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's why it's good – like I mean why I like to have the conversations about – not knowing in the past either because I don't like to I don't like to judge people for something that they didn't know, right? Yeah, but, or that we uh, didn't the, even have the words yeah. for at that but time, the, you know? But you can judge once you do know. Like yes. once yeah, you yeah, don't yeah, do yeah. know and you don't fix oh, it up. And I'm judging these men like crazy now. Like these men but are I, rebranding I, themselves as very like cool hmm. woke people now and I'm like, well, I knew you back then and I knew that this was like – I. I see the harm that you've inflicted upon. Like I've, I was talking to my other, my other friend about this, who's a woman. She works in games, and how like 
we kind of have found ourselves now, we've been around long enough that we have been part of like the villain origin story for a lot of like men who are now getting canceled, like who've come up <laughs> and they've been like, yeah, I'm right on. I'm doing all the whole, all the thing. And now mm. they're getting canceled. But it's like, but I remember back then I saw them doing dodgy shit, but I wasn't in a place where anyone would listen to me. So like it just went ignored. I don't know. Maybe that's too tangential. What were no, you going to say, Will? No, I, no, I look, I think that, you know, I, I don't know. Cause these are things of course, like the older you get and the more you wrestle with, this idea of like what you should have, I like to rigorously, I mean, it's a real, with both forgiveness, some Mm. forgiveness of that person at that time. Mm. But also I do like to go back and relentlessly examine my own behavior to like, cause you can stop at, I didn't know and excuse yourself. But I think the more interesting question is, should I have known? Yeah. Like, was I looking? And sometimes I feel like I can really go, that's fine. I really think that you didn't think about it because you had a million other things you were thinking about and it was someone else's job really to be asking those questions. And when you got to the point where you were the person who was able to, you did and you rectified things and, like, you know, you can go, okay, great. But then there's other mm. things in my life where I'm like, like, I reckon language around trans people, I was late to. Yeah. Like later than I would have liked as a person who thinks that they try their best to keep up to date with like, you know, what's it? That, that, you know, I remember a few times getting messages from early days in, you know, probably I guess 10, 12 years ago, podcasts where I would say something or something and somebody would, you know, message me and mostly in good faith, honestly, yeah. to say, hey, that joke just felt a bit or like, you know, the way you said that thing was a little – and yeah. I would feel very defensive – Whereas in retrospect, yeah, considering the way I would speak about those things today, I was like, geez, I wish I hadn't been so defensive and I wish I'd been a little bit more open because two years later, that's what you would have said to totally. someone yeah, else, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's yeah. like, I mean, and by the way, I don't expect that you're always going to go back and get it right. But this idea that you're not going back and examining that, like I think the people who've benefited from it, they have to – the people who have nothing to gain. I remember talking to um, uh, Todd Glass one night at the. Um, uh, we were at the Montreal uh, Comedy Festival, and he was saying some girl I met in Australia just full on ripped off Sarah Silverman's act. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. what he said. No, we were smoking <laughs> a um, apple bong. We were smoking weed out of an apple. Okay, connoisseurs. On the roof of the comedy club. (laughs) Amazing, yeah. And we were talking about, um, you know, gay rights and gay marriage and marriage equality. And it was back sort of when I think Canada, we were in Canada when they were a bit, you know, far in front of everybody else at that time. And, um, And we were having a conversation that night and I said, you know the thing that, and this is the toughest thing, is that the hard work a lot of the time needs to be done by, for things to really change, needs to be done by the people who have very little to gain from it changing. Yeah, that's it, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> like, and that's what I was saying about like TikTok. Like, it's not in like TikTok's financial benefit to adjust the platform for it to be an enjoyable place to create things. Like, it's just not. And so, yeah, and it's, what do they say? It's like... Like I like to say, it's not about equality, it's about equity. Like it's like, you know, because people who have been historically shut out of things 
um, they will ask more of you now and it will feel like a bigger loss because like there's a lot to make up for and like, um, you know, I think I have a little bit of a reputation of being a mouthy bitch. Um, but I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to do that. Like I'm happy uh-huh. to be annoying and I'm happy to be make things uncomfortable because I also feel like I want it to be normalized to me. Like if like I'm hurting someone either intentionally or not, like I want that to be brought to my attention as quickly as possible. But I also think like, I don't know. I just think that's where social change comes from truly is by being fucking loud and annoying. Like, Well, sometimes you have to be loud and annoying for people to hear, particularly if they're not listening. Um, uh, I am interested in a conversation we had the other day and we can just take this as far or as not far as you would like to. Yeah. So, am I being uh, interesting, by the way? Like, I'm, I can't I'm, tell. I'm, you having a good time? I'm, I'm having a good time. I'm certainly having a great time. Okay. Like, Good, good, you know good. what too is there is and I'll tell you a little secret and I'm only telling you this because in the same way as I only ever tell um, an audience that they're smart because they got a joke on the nights when they got it. It's not like you're telling the nights that didn't get it that yeah, joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I already did one of these this morning that went for two hours. And so when I'm doing one in the afternoon, any time after the 90-minute mark, like I'm normally, you know, a bit tired and I'm okay, like, okay. Yeah, we yeah, can yeah. wrap this up. And I am nowhere near even starting the final Great. questions yet. So Great. Love if it. that is a judgment. I'm loving it. No, no, yeah, I'm loving no, cool. it. Then, and um, like, I'm like, genuinely, I love talking to you and I always get so much out of it. Like I remember at Brisbane Comedy Festival years and years ago, I was struggling through as always, is my thing. And I remember you said something to me about like how like even if it doesn't feel good on stage, every time, every minute you're, that you're there, you're like learning something about the craft and that there's always something useful in it. Like if there's like a bomb or if there's not a bomb or whatever. Um, and obviously I don't bomb anymore. But um, I just thought I found that so good because I think for so long I thought that like not doing exactly what I set out to do and like hit the level I think – meant that it was a waste of time and it was like very nice to hear that from you. I I mean, it's nice to hear that back because sometimes I need to be reminded of that. Yeah. I love I love telling people their impact. That's like my fa- one of my favorite things to do. Because like I think that there's the thing that I admire most about people is like generosity, not necessarily of like material, but like of time and of intention. And I think like, yeah, I'm a fucking gooey little hippie. When you like rub off one layer of cynicism, I'm the gooeyest little hippie. But that's good. Like mm. I think this whole thing that you've talked about here, like, I mean, it's been nice to have you as, um, you know, part of our little gang, um, you know, on Gruen this year. We've been having a very fun time. And, uh, um you know, you got invited in. Like, I mean, we invite, as you would know from, like, we we hire people we like. You know, like, we've got this little fun thing that we get to do all together and we only invite people in that we think will also, you know, be fun and, and good to, like, you know, elevate what we do. But we're not, you know, we... Yeah, people aren't hired necessarily on on reputations. They're hired on their capacity to do the job and their capacity to fit into the general vibe of what it is that we do. So, like, you know, that's been fun. It's been nice to, you know, get to spend some time with you because, like, we haven't really seen each, much of each other. But you did come in last year and help us out on a workshop for oh, QE, yeah. which was so <laughs> fucking funny. Like, I still oh, – there was something you said that day. 
for honestly for about two months made me laugh i can't remember what it, we were talking about now but i remember at the time it was so funny and that's um, so funny i was but, having yeah, no. a full-on panic attack that day because it was one of the first times i'd been back to the abc mm. since i left and i was yeah. i've had a full-on ptsd episode that day and so i was so anxious about being there but i was like so grateful for the opportunity and i just remember being the collie like i'd message him afterwards i'm like i oh, fucking bomb him and he was like no it's good you were good like what are you talking about like yeah yeah, you were good, dude. Like, honestly, I, th- I was really engaged in what you did. I thought you were super funny. And um, uh, I'd been hearing you a bit on various podcasts and just thinking you were doing a really good job. And it did really feel like, I don't know, there'd just been some change in you, whether you'd noticed that or not, was certainly noticeable from the outside. That It was just, there was a sureness, like funny for all the anxiety chat and all these sort of things, there was kind of a sense of self. I mean, I remember you telling some story about going on a holiday. It might have been on Dum Dum even. Oh, yeah, yeah, about fucking going through Mexico on Bumble. Yeah, (laughs) and it was honestly, it made me laugh. (laughs) Like, you know, when you're like walking along listening to a podcast, like laughing out loud, like really just funny, you know, funny stuff. And um, Oh, thank you. I'm absolutely uh, not fishing for compliments, by the way. But I just mean, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm just giving it at the moment. But we're all, like I'm a real believer that we're all part of a, community and we're at our best when it is a community and it is about the hang and it isn't a competition i don't think this is an orchestra i don't think anyone ever takes away your place i think if becky lucas does well it means that next time they're like another show is like oh we can't get becky lucas because she's but we want someone who like we now can see that that is proof of concept that that's a thing that we like it opens the door for someone else and someone else opens the door for someone else and eventually they're not the representation of all asian people people or, yeah. or whatever they're just themselves yeah and aaron chen can be aaron chen he doesn't have to you be know the like, chinese guy right. yeah, or yeah, ronnie yeah. chang can be ronnie chang and they don't need to be you know like people can just be who they are and i think that's a good thing but the abc thing the abc of it all like oh we can God. talk about is uh, this is much or as little as you like oh but like, i love talking about it so well we got i mean let's start it like i mean that you Talked about that trauma of going back into the ABC. For those who don't know, tell them as much or as little of like what you mean by that as uh, as you would like to. Sure. So, uh, so people might know that I used to work at Triple J. I was there for five years as a, a host. I hosted lunch. I hosted Drive. And um, it was my dream job, like truly. Like I, I always wanted to be there. I grew up on it. Like that was just my place. And um. One day while I was hosting um, lunch, a man had broken into the studios and attacked me while I was there. And um, and we later came to find out he'd been stalking me at that point for about uh, eight months. And the process of extricating myself from that situation, like, gave me PTSD. Like, that's what the doctors said. It wasn't necessarily the attack. It was the fact that you kept going back and were kept le- being let down by people who you previously trusted. Like, that's what caused the PTSD. Um, And so I left. I left at the end of 2019. And I was like, who needs the ABC? 2020 is going to be my year. Going to move to LA in March of 2020. Going to do an international tour. Going to do my own stand-up show. And I had all these things lined up. And then the little pandemic happened and that didn't happen. And I'm kind of grateful for that because I'm I'm really glad I didn't move to LA 
in the last few years, I think it would have been a terrible place <laughs> to be, frankly. Um, yeah. But yeah, but uh, so I, I have spent a lot of time kind of unpacking that. And it sucks to continually hear stories of people being uh, assaulted either online or in person by people who supposedly are fans of ABC and then nothing happens. Like even hearing the Stan Grant stuff that happened a few months ago, like, or a month ago even, I can't even remember what it was, but like that was devastating to me because again, it's not new information to anyone involved that, you know, people are being abused in their workplace um, and it's not being taken seriously. Obviously his is a very different story and that's for him to tell. But like that was devastating to me here that and to hear Michael Hing talk about it. And like I'd known, you know, some of what Hing had been through because he we talk about it. And when I was going through what I would had been through, he was a huge support for me. But yeah, it's it's devastating to me that like it doesn't seem to be changing at all. So uh this is all true like you know oh yeah and also like i don't know how comfortable you are obviously you're like a big face of the abc like i don't want to be like the job they're giving me but like i mean if you were pursuing some agenda that wasn't a just a true statement then sure maybe i would push back on that but i think there's a brilliant way of framing this. You should not need this, by the way. You should be believed just for your story alone. Like, But the fact that when what happened to Stan happened to Stan so publicly and Stan being such a huge identifiable figure and people – like that got broadcast you know, through mass media in a way that your story and even Hing's story didn't. But like – but his story opened up for Michael to tell his story and he's a pretty big face with the project and that audience now. So these stories about this institutional failure, there are other examples. Again, I restate you should not need those other examples to verify that what you had basically said was the exact same thing that had happened to you. Like happened, you shouldn't, right? But I think that I'm not going out on any limb here to say that those those things are all just true. These are all just true things that happened. I also would go a step further and say the ABC, because I spoke to Liam Stapleton on this show recently. Beautifully. And, you know, and like witnessing that was awful. Like I mean, they were ben lovely and Liam people. almost driven out of like radio by yeah. like people who purportedly love the station that they were working on. And yeah, for all the, the sin of accepting a job that was offered to them. You totally. Know? Like who, what 20 and 21 year old in this country wouldn't accept the breakfast job on Triple J if it was offered to them? If they loved radio, who would say no to that? Like no one. And like, you're right. They did absolutely fucking nothing wrong. And I remember like Liam saying he was like confronted by like Triple J listeners at a festival and they surrounded him and stuff. Like that's insane. But like there's this attitude. I was thinking about it when I was walking in today. Like there's this attitude of like, oh, you know, it's part of the part of the deal. You want this, like it's part of the deal. And it's like and we used to accept that like oh yeah i guess it's part of the deal but it's like that shouldn't that shouldn't be a part like we all should all should turn around now and be like this isn't part of the deal like we shouldn't, it shouldn't be. be it's unfair it's 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 absolutely and particularly so here's there's so much to this but firstly we've been convinced as a society that we're meant to be accepting this much negative feedback which is a problem across the board then it becomes 
an amplified problem, and this is not to excuse the ABC, it's to say the ABC should have an even higher responsibility in regard to this. Because here's what I'll tell you about. Mm. If I'm on Triple M and I say something that people hate, they might hate me personally, but guess what they don't do? Contact Triple M like about it. They just get on with their day, right? Like mostly. I'm not saying that is like the hard and fast rule, but like the ABC people believe because they are taxpayers – that they are allowed to, um, you know, express their opinion about everything and they have ownership over the thing and it's almost like a righteous. It's like when yeah. someone well, like thinks they're on the I right side get... of the mob, you know, yeah. and then, but you're still a mob. You yeah. formed a mob, right? And, and it's the scale of it as well. Like mm. I used to get, like when there were complaints made about me, they were sent to me, like, like by my manager. They would go through management and they were sent to me. And it's like, yeah, maybe like everyone has a shit day at work, but it's like when you're speaking to half a million people and some of them are total fucking gronks, the scale of like feedback you're getting that is negative is insane. Like I remember the first day I started at Triple J, uh, as a lunch host. So I was taking over from like the great Louis McCurdy who like mm-hmm. beloved, um, yes. you know, wonderful person, very different to who I am, very different style. The first day in the first half hour of me being on air, someone sent through on the text line a picture of a dick and a vice and they were like, this is what it's like listening to you. And I was just like, what the fuck? And so I took that to management and I was like, hey, like someone just texted in a picture of a dick in a vice. And they're like, ha 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 ha, crazy. I guess we really miss Louie. And that was it. Like nothing, no escalation. No, like, are you okay? Like that's not okay to be sexually harassed through the radio. Like, and yet nothing. I remember another time, like someone sent a bomb threat through while I was on air. And so then I had to deal with the police because like my managers went around and like, I just dealt with that. And it's like one of those things. And then of course, like, yeah, being stalked, being attacked, like, that one of these things is too many, all of these things is, like, unconscionable, you know? Right. And the truth of it is that, you know, you can go back to, I think, you know, Helen Razor spoke on this podcast about her experience of having something very similar happen and that's, and Helen and you know, I talked 30 about years it. ago now, yeah. right? Yeah, in the same studio. Like, yeah. it's, you know... So, oh. I, like, so, I mean, I'm sorry that we're talking about this, but, I, again, it's one of those things that, like, clearly... There is a higher – these things are things that – I mean, there's a guy who literally when I was on Triple J back in the day when it wasn't text lines who, who would write, you know, six-page letters about how he was going to murder me every day about things that I'd said on the radio, right? Yeah. Like – and there were letters and cl- the, we talked to the police. He was in Western Australia. They said he's probably just schizophrenic, most likely. Nothing would ever – this isn't probably something that could, could concern you. And since then, a, a few times over the years – I've been in a situation where one of those letters has popped up and I'm like, oh, and I will talk to my management and they're like, oh, yeah, he's kind of been in touch yeah. the whole time but we've just, you know, and that's right. That. Yeah. I shouldn't no. be yeah. hearing about that. I should That shouldn't be direct feedback but like at least you should have to opt in, right? Yeah. And I'm not saying Stan should have to put up with what he puts up with in any way. Don't please that. But if he – at least goes on social media and then gets negative feedback on social media. He could not go on the social media. He shouldn't have yeah. to do that. He shouldn't have he to maintain not. a presence. Like right? that's insane. Yeah. But as part of your job, you're not even allowed to say I no to it. Like Yeah. I got in trouble once because 
Um, so there's this thing that was on Triple J for a while called like Girls to the Front. And on International Women's Day, it was an all-female presenting crew, all music made by a female non-binary artist all day. And it was always the day where we got so much shit, like just dudes being like, when's fucking International Men's Day? Meh, meh, meh. <laughs> and it became kind of like a running joke. Line, the yeah, way, I think it's in November or whatever the like, fuck. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then, but then I remember on International Men's Day, all of these men started like piling in on the fucking, um, on the fucking text line being like, well, you guys didn't do anything for International yeah. Men's Day and like blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And like they didn't understand that like the women of Triple J put on girls to the front. The men of Triple J are free to do whatever they like on International Men's Day. And it's not our, like it would be insane for women to have to put on International Men's Day for them. <laughs> but like, but like, because I'm a female voice that happens to be playing music on a International Men's Day, yeah. they like, just like so much abuse all day on my so personal social media online as well. And I remember I like just posted something flippant on my Instagram being like, happy International Men's Day to all the gronks on the text line. And this guy threatened to call the police on me because he said he felt like I was harassing him. And I was just like, how, like, I'm literally Spotify. Like, I'm just a person. I don't even, I'm not on a talk shift. I'm just there being like, here, that was June Rats and coming up is the chats and, like, this is the station you're on. Like, and then I wouldn't talk for 25 minutes. Like, in an hour, I would talk maybe a maximum of four minutes. Like, that's it. And people, like, I got fucking dead. It's, like, crazy to me. It's nuts to me. And it has really affected me moving forward because like there were times where you know I couldn't I had to can I've cancelled so many shows because it wasn't safe for me to do so because I'd gotten tip-offs from the police or from my management being like it's not gonna be safe for you to do this tonight and it's like man all I want to do is just tell some silly little jokes like that's it yeah that and shouldn't I'm, be part of the price of doing business and yeah and and it look and again it just is something that everyone needs to be better at including the ABC because the ABC have got to recognise if they say to you that this is just part of it, yeah, you get it the upside, you know, if people love you at the ABC, they'll be a fan forever, so you have to put up with the negative side of this. Well, if that is true, then the organisation also has to do totally. that, which is they have to recognise that the fact that people love the ABC so much, sometimes they do very bad things in the name of what they see is that ownership or professing that love. And the ABC just has a responsibility to have a better support structure for that. I'm not even saying on this show that the ABC is going to be capable of, you know, like, I mean, of course, there's always going to be some, you know, the lone government theory, right? You know what I mean? Where anyone can assassinate the president. But the... But as an institution, like you said, the PTSD comes from how you were failed by people post something happening. Yeah. You've got to just have better things in place, better structures. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to run out of studio time soon anyway, so I've got some regular questions I ask everyone. <laughs> it's okay. It's fine. It's a, good, it's a good jumping off point. What do you think happens when we die? Oh, man. Well, as someone who got very close. Um, yeah. <laughs> good segue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time. yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm so I'm Maori, and like our belief around death is that, and time essentially is that it's all connected, right? And like when we, uh, part of the death process, the tonguey process of death is that you say goodbye to someone as they're leaving, if you know that they're sick. 
that the world between this world and the spiritual world opens up at the same time. And so we are um, saying goodbye to them as they're being welcomed by our ancestors on the other side. And so I think when we die, it is just energy converting into different energy. Um, and that gives me a sense of peace. And I don't think that we stop existing anymore. Again, like in the Maori death kind of practice, like we have a tangi, it's five days and the body lies in state. And like I went to one early this year and the body lies in state. It can be in like, it was in a house and we would play music that they like and we would drink drinks that they like and we put photos of the things they like around them and we'd hold their hand and like touch their hair and even though maybe they weren't alive the physical body is there and they're there and we would just talk to them like you know like they were there and I think that that's that's what I would like to happen to me if I die uh would you prefer to know and you have to choose one it's a hypothetical um would you prefer to know when or how you die um Probably when. I think when would be good. But then also I like not knowing. I like that I think it could be tomorrow, you know? <laughs> it gives I mean, it some it spice. Be. You yeah, never know. Well, I well, mean, yeah. as you know, it could be. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. Could have been, you know? Um, yeah. So I think I think when would be good to know. Mm. Yeah. What if it was a, if it turned out it was a short period of time? Let's just say it was, you know, a year, a year from now, it's going to happen. How would you spend that time? Oh, traveling instantly. Mm, yeah. I would do like some, I would do the biggest show I could do with the most amount mm. of people as well. Like I love that whole, mm. um, what's his name? Andy Kaufman approach to it. I would love to do something like that. And then I would travel and just do insane stuff. I mean, like on the other side of being attacked, there really was a point where I'm like, I could die at any moment. So I fucked off to Mexico by myself and just went traveling by myself and did a bunch of things that I always wanted to do because I was like, I'm not going to die in a fucking government building in the middle of town. I'm going to die doing something super cool. And like that goes back to like, you know, my friend Jordan and my friend and my cousin Anthony, like they were doing something that they loved, they super loved. And so that's how I hope it happens. What's the best or worst piece of advice you've ever got? Um... It's like the corniest best piece of advice I've got, which is like, uh, it's so funny because it's like, I feel like I've gone some real deep places here, but it would be, um, if it's not a fuck yeah, it's a fuck no. <laughs> 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 but it's true. Like yeah, it's, it's, it's just like, you know, you just know, you just know. And whenever I trust my gut, it's always right. If it's, yeah, it's the corniest, like you could put it on a fucking mug and sell it at Kmart, but it's true. Like it's good. No, we're good with this. This is good. Sometimes you know, look, we've had big wild rambles in this one, so I think a nice pithy mug quote at the end is, totally. is fun. <laughs> uh, okay, a genie comes down tomorrow. Magic wand can just give you any ability in the world. So you're immediately good at something. You don't have to do the hard yards of the conservatory, like you know, to get good at something. You just literally have this skill overnight. Mm. What would you like to just be able to do? I'd love to like learn languages really easily because yeah. I love languages Good but I, and I've tried to like learn them and it's so hard for me and I would just love mm. to have, you know, those people and they have that brain and they just pick it up. I would love that. I would love yeah. that so much. I think it would be so cool. I don't know what I'd do with it. Travel. Probably, 
It'd be good for your travel. At the it'd, very be good least. For, it'd be good to like yell at trolls in different. In, yeah. You could do your show in different countries. Totally. Full, you That's know what it. I mean? Commercially, I think it'd be great. <laughs> it would be a good hook to yeah, be able yeah, to communicate yeah. in every language. Totally. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, I'd become the new Mr. Bean. Like, yeah. whereas like, he doesn't talk at all, I'm talking everyone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, last but not least, I have a time machine. I can take it at any point in time. It's a round trip. You have to bring the machine back but um you can go forward in time or backwards in time there's none of those sort of back to the future multiverse time like you can do whatever you want like you can ignore yourself it doesn't have to have anything to do with you you can just go to some point in, in the past you w- wish you'd been at you can give yourself a message you can go to the future i don't care like but i, I just like to know what you would like to do with the time machine oh i mean dinosaurs right they're really sick I don't want, like I don't want to witness any human history because I just think it's a bummer. Um, and I would just like to go to a place where I mean, even like again, um, like really leaning into this Maori thing. But I'd love to go back to like pre-colonial Aotearoa, like where Maori settlements are happening, and see what that society was actually like. Like a pre-colonial world would be so cool, or dinosaurs, or both. I don't know, but uh, yeah, <laughs> probably dinosaurs. If I could leave, then dinosaurs. If I had to stay, then pre-colonial Aotearoa, for sure. Uh, Jen Fricker, thank you so much for um, uh, being part of this today. If people want to, what do you want to plug, basically, is the question I'm going to ask you. I've got some fun stuff coming up mm. that I I have to be annoying and say it's not announced yet, but if you follow me... Hey, it's producer Mike. The project Jen's talking about here has since been announced. It's a podcast called Throwing Drinks. Here's the trailer. Hey, Jen. Fricker. Hey, Maggie Luke. What are we doing? We're making a podcast, Ma- baby. Making a podcast. About what? About the Real Housewives. The Real Housewives. The yeah. TV series or just women in general? Ugh. No, the TV series. TV series. That's excellent. <laughs> How exciting. I'm so excited to join you. Yeah. Every week we'll be doing a recap of the brand new Real Housewives of New York series, plus diving into the beautiful history. Rich history, isn't it? Yeah, of the entire Housewives universe. You know, I would love to add up how many hours there is of this thing. That surely it'd be in the thousands. We're Probably. Talk, we're talking 22 episodes roughly of each season and then we've got numerous series, different mm-hmm. kinds of franchises. Plus we'll have some funny friends join us along the way. Well, well. <laughs> Make sure you subscribe to Throwing Drinks with Maggie and Jen wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on socials at Throwing Drinks Pod. See you soon. <laughs> you gonna see them? That's weird. I don't know. <laughs> Where do people find out about the fun stuff that you're doing? Uh, if you want to find out what I'm up to, uh, Instagram is my the only place I truly exist. Um, it's at Jen Fricker with a G, and yeah, I usually post about that stuff there if you can find me. Thank you very much, mate. Thank you, mate. Listener.